film nerds, and welcome to A Very Good Year, a new podcast where we invite a guest in the world of entertainment or film or what have you to pick their favorite year of movies and walk through that year with us in detail to talk about its movies. I am your host, Jason Bailey. And across the mic and across the country from me is my co-host, Michael Hall. Our guest today uh, is, seriously, for my money, just one of the finest cinematographers to ever do it. Uh, He first came to our attention with his beautifully textured work on Middle of Nowhere, which was the first of his collaborations with uh, the great Ava DuVernay, which have also included Selma and When They See Us. His other credits include Pariah, Ain't Them Body Saints, A Most Violent Year, Mother of George, Solo, A Star Wars Story, and last but certainly not least, Arrival, for which he was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Cinematography. Uh, He was just the subject of a retrospective series at the wonderful Metrograph Theater right here in New York. Friends, this is Bradford Young. Hi, Bradford. What's up? What's up? Thank you so much for doing this, man. This is a real is a real thrill for us. Uh, we've had, you know, writers, we've had comedians, we've had actor filmmakers, but we've not had a cinematographer on before. Oh, and wow. To get, okay. All right. To, to get one of the <laughs> one of the premier in the business is a, is a real thrill. So so thank you for taking the time to, to talk to us today. Oh, no, it's, no, it's my pleasure. It's an honor. I'm humble. So thank you for the, the, <laughs> and that beautiful introduction. Thank you for, for reminding me of for reminding me of the films that I've shot. it's a lot it's a lot to remember um well you know we just came off this i i you know i got the idea to try to to try to reach out to you to make it happen because you know the email came through my inbox for this metrograph series and when i saw the stuff that you were you know they're showing your work but also films that you handpicked uh that sort of were influences or inspirations or complement them in some way and when i saw these these picks like you know the babylon not the new babylon the 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 og babylon not the og OG. (laughs) we ain't doing the new babylon so the og (laughs) (laughs) with mother of george and then kez with ain't them body saints and the yards which is one of my like favorite 90s new york movies with the most violent year i was just like Dude is a serious cinephile. We got to get him on the show. So tell me about why. Well, first of all, tell the audience what year you picked and and why you picked it, why that year in this era really is, is so important to you. Yeah, I mean, I picked 1979. And uh, honestly, I didn't even I didn't listen. I didn't remember any of the films from 1979 that I picked. I, <laughs> actually, I didn't realize uh, the films that I picked were from 1979. So it was a pleasant surprise to see. What, what films that were, came out that year. Um, basically what I did was I, you know, I picked my favorite filmmaker of all time, Mr. Haile Garima. Mm. And uh, I picked one of my favorite films of his of all time, Bush Mama, mm-hmm. which uh, is 1979. And I just backed out from there. <laughs> and then I just started, mm-hmm. yeah. I just started doing my homework. You know what I mean? You know, thank, yeah. you know, thank God for the internet. Um, but it was easy. But then, <laughs> but then you know, I realized. Then you know, because I'm, I'm definitely. I'm, listen, I've seen some films, but um, I'm definitely not. Yes. I'm definitely not like AJ or or Scorsese or some of the other film savants that can just tell you <laughs> what film, what films were right. were made in that particular year. But um, so that just made it even better because I was able to discover, you know, so many incredible films came out in 1979. So well, I'm I'm curious, you know, the this era. I mean. We've covered a lot of seventies years on this show, you know, and we got a few a few more to come, but it's definitely like a, a time in which 
you know, film lovers of today really hold it in this high esteem and this really specific regard as this sort of magical period. And I always like to ask guests who pick a 70s year, like, what was it about this this point in film history, do you think, that that led to such miraculous work being made? This is what, you know, um, Ted Demi would call, you know, this is this is this is this is these years of under the influence. You know, this is like Mm -hmm. this is these are some of the, you know, the most fabled years of independent American cinema. You know, this is when right. actually we were lucky enough to have artists running studio systems, you know? So, which is right. strange, right? That's strange. Like that, right. that's not what's going down now. So it hasn't yeah. gone down since. Yeah. So, you know, artists, yeah. artists, you know, I, I don't love the, the term auteur, but, you know, artists were um, able to make films in a way that they arguably haven't been able to make since. So the 1980s is a different time, you know? Yeah. I mean, you know, you still got Altman, you still got all the greats making incredible films in the 80s, but the 70s was an era, you know, it's post-civil rights, it's in, quote-unquote, post-civil rights, it's in the middle of the Black Power movement, um, it's, you know, it's, it's Vietnam. I mean, you got so much, so many things going on, and you got filmmakers that literally were children of the movement making films, so... Um, and that's just not American. That's an international struggle against colonialism, imperialism, racism, fascism. So, you know, all of these films, you know, at that time are really workers focused, yep. people of color focused, women focused. So it's a time, you know, it's a moment. And um, yeah, so to say, not, and that's two years after my birth. So <laughs> not that, there, I, you know, so there you go. There you go. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm I listen, yeah. I'm. I thank God every day I was born in the seventies, you know, I'm, I'm <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? the seventies is a good time to be yeah. born, you know? And so, yeah. Yes. We, we, we concur. Um, I, I, I love the, your, your disinterest in the phrase auteur, because I think, especially from the point of view of a cinematographer, that resistance makes a lot of sense. And, a lot of what was great about a lot of these great movies were these incredible artists who were who were in those cinematography positions. You know, people like Gordon Willis, who you've been compared with a lot, uh, I mm. think accurately. Mm. Vilmo yeah. Sigmund, Laz- Laszlo Kovacs, Haskell Wexler, John Alonzo, you know, th- Victoria Storaro, oh, John Alonzo. Come on, man. You know, um, Roderick Young. There are just so many and so many, you know so many incredible folks, you know, it's a, it's a tie. It's a, it's a, it's go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm, I'm, I'm cutting you no, off. No, I'm getting, no, I'm getting excited. I'm, I'm getting excited. <laughs> I want you to, no, no, no. I want to know what these, what they were doing that was new and that was fresh and why it's held up so well. I mean, the technology was changing, you know, the, the, the idea that film was being held by faster lenses, which means that, you know, um, you know, this is like the birth of the sort of the beginnings of the, you know, what we later saw with Robbie Mueller. It's like, you saw, folks interested in mixed lighting. You know, we saw folks really interested in a certain kind of truth in cinematography that we had not seen before. And then you have, you know, somebody like Vittorio Storaro or, um, you, you know, you have somebody like uh, uh, Vilmos, these cats, uh, you know, are coming from Europe and they're bringing a uh, quote unquote European sensibility to the table, which is also about a certain truthfulness, a certain uh, new mm. wave, a new wave of realism, a post sort of new wave of realism. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you have this collision of, again, all these social movements, you know, everybody thinking about uh, the world in which we live and the way f- film has sort of um, been a culprit of false imaginative landscapes. And, you know, you had a group of filmmakers that really wanted to mosh that down and change it, really burn it down. And so, you know, you have the introduction of it's like su- super speed lenses. You have all these things that really open up our ability to 
you know, not turn on, you know, use naturalism and naturalism in every way. Naturalism in the way in which directors work with actors. If that's, I'm sure, I'm sure some directors will be like, what is that? We, you know, what I mean? but you know, nat- <laughs> you know, the way in which directors work with actors and, and definitely naturalism in, in the way in which the cinematographers we mentioned use light, you know, and so we got out of the way, technology got out of the way and we were able to, um, and the films that we love from that era, from that era, were able to get, um, close to a certain kind of realism that, we had not seen before definitely in american cinema so i think that's that's what we love about that era it's a truthfulness you know that makes sense yeah that makes sense well and the other thing that's really striking to me when you look at sort of just what was coming down the pike on a studio level is that these cinematographers that we're talking about were experimenting with new techniques they're pushing the boundaries of form and function and they're doing Mm -hmm. it in major studio productions in like mainstream movies this is not fringe art in a lot of cases you know and there are certain there's certainly a handful of cinematographers now like you, like Bob Ellswit, like Roger Deakins, mm-hmm. who are crafting and expanding, you know, in a in a sort of distinctive individual aesthetic. But most mainstream movie making these days, in my opinion, correct me if I'm wrong, seems to adhere to kind of a house style, mm-hmm. whether it's the studio or the streamer behind it. So mm-hmm. <clears throat> my long winded question is, <laughs> is it is it frustrating or challenging for someone like you who is dedicated to like cinematography as an art? to work in that kind of an environment that you're like, you encounter pushback if you want to, I don't know, like make a star Wars movie that doesn't look like every other star Wars movie or something insane like that. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think, you you know, it's funny that we, this like retrospective is happening, which is like crazy. Um, and then we're having this conversation cause I feel like I'm on the tail end of my, uh, my career as a cinematographer because the way in which I want to work is not sustainable. And, you know, I respect that. I've struggled with that for like the last few years. I haven't finished a film in a long time. <laughs> I, haven't, yeah. I haven't shot yeah. a film in like almost five years. And part of that is because, you know, yeah. um, you know, my, my process is not agreeable with the current um, way in which films are being made. And so I think part of what that is, is that, you know, um, I was trained and taught and the pedagogy in which I stand on comes from an error um the tutelage, you know, comes from an era that was forged in these 1970s filmmaking contexts, which is, you know, you know, fuck the system. You know what I mean? Like we're not, we're not <laughs> film, film, film. We're talking about, we're talking about Hour of the Furnace. We're talking about uh, yeah. Battle of Chile. We're talking about films that actually were rep, were used for revolution. And so um, my teachers, my, I, I'm, I'm taught by those kinds of cats, you know what I mean? The films that um, we love of that era actually exemplify that kind of working environment. Now, listen, I think, you know, there are clearly some incredible filmmakers making incredible films now. Um, and it's a different time. And I think some folks are able to balance that thing of studios, which are um, not uh, are unwavering in their uh, fascist tendencies currently. Um, and, you know, the fact that, you know, you have, independent-minded, free-spirited artists working within those systems. Those You find artists today that are able to strike a different kind of balance. Um, I did, I think, you know, I did it on, people always ask me about Solo, and I say Solo's different. Lucasfilms, Kathy Kennedy, these are independent filmmakers. You know what I mean? Still, even at mm. the level they're at, even the movies, they're, they're still, their mindset, their history, their yeah. background, their methods. That's it. That's it. These are independent filmmakers, you know, so... I haven't really had, you know, I had, well, I have had that experience, you know, where I had to struggle and I left the film where, you know, the, the, my, the way I wanted to photograph the film wasn't agreeable with the process. Um, but, you know, by and large, it's that balance now that I think is really a talent. You know what I mean? I don't have that talent. So I really do celebrate all these artists out here who are able to do it. The, 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 
the OG par excellence dude that's able to do that balance is Greg Frazier. That's my man. This is a cat that's able to, who's also, I feel like, is built from that sort of independent. This cat is about the image. He's about the story. He's about the story and the image in a way that was celebrated in the late 1970s. And he's able to work in the system. And they respect him because he's able to bring that high level of artistry and that high level of efficiency that needs to happen for studios to be pleased and for the directors to be pleased. And so um, I think that era is what, that, what we see in that era is you know, studios being, you know, led, or that's a loose word, but being um, the heads of studios were former artists, folks that respected artists, respected, um, you know, the kind of work that they would get from a Francis Ford Coppola or from, um, uh, uh, you know, the list goes on and on and on from an Altman, you know, what have you. Um, and they respected the craft. They, they knew that um, audiences' appetites were different, you know, they would desire a different kind of storytelling, different kind of cinema. And they knew that the filmmaker needed space <laughs> to have voice. And so they, they celebrated. It didn't last long, but for that moment, you know, that's, I think that's the reason why, you know, you take a year like 1979, you see such incredible films, you know, you know, you only gave me five to pick. But once I looked at that list, I was like, how am I choose? <laughs> how am I, how am I, <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and, and also too, yeah. also too, just looking at, you know, those films that were wildly commercial versus those films that were, again, straddling that line, um, you know, there's some really interesting, the layers, the diversity of films are really incredible. I think the texture of the films are, are, are determined by, have, were determined by the time. And it's really incredible to see, see that as well. I think all that jazz is, all that jazz is 79 too, right? It is. Yeah, man, please. Come on, bro. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> all right. All right. Well, before we dip into this, uh, this top five list, which is, which is incredible. Uh, we're going to do uh, begin our little trip back in time. Uh, Mike's going to take us through some of the news of the day outside of the movie theater. Here's headlines. Good evening. New beginning, new relationship, and certainly at last a new and more realistic view of one another. Not so very long ago, to them, we were the running dogs of imperialism evil exploiters of the world's suffering masses. To us, they were the yellow peril, the faceless coolies. Of course, we both should have known better. In January of 1979, the U.S. and China established full diplomatic relations, and later that year, Ding Xiaoping would visit D.C. for the first time. Uh-huh. So that would have implications for the future. It would. Uh, end of January and end of February was the Iranian revolu Revolution, when a terrible man who was on our payroll was replaced by a terrible man who wasn't. Uh, the hostage <laughs> crisis would happen later that year and tank Jimmy Carter's whole thing he was trying to do. So yeah. probably don't need to tell anybody who's listened to this where that went. Yeah, how, how'd that turn out? <laughs> Ooh, oh, my. Uh, also in February, uh, OG Nazi scumbag Joseph Mengele, like the one, had a stroke while he was swimming and he drowned. So that's obviously good. Child. Double fuck that guy. <laughs> Big ups for the Grim Reaper, everybody. Big hand for, for death. Yeah. It done. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it took a while, but, you know, it, yeah. it happened. And it happened in a really painful, shitty way. So here's to that. Kudos. Uh, Kudos. The Brits left Malta and lost another crumb off of their empire. Bye. We like to I celebrate just, that. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> I just got to say the only thing I, I I I think of whenever I think about Malta and this is my my shortcoming as a human being is that 
when they made Popeye and built all the oh, sets yeah. on Malton, they, still they there. left them up. They still there. They're still there. They, <laughs> they turned still it there. into like a theme park right. that still exists. Pop, you can go to Malta and visit Popeye Land. Yeah. And one of the many reasons I'm angry at COVID is I was going to pitch a 40th anniversary, like, let me go to Popeye Land and <laughs> write about Malta. Right. And I, I couldn't, couldn't go. Right. Shit was closed. Right. <laughs> Uh, also 1979, uh, Sweden outlawed spanking, and they have managed to continue to raise responsible adults somehow. Somehow. So that's pretty good. Right on. <laughs> Hello, everybody. The tri-state at this hour undoubtedly is still shocked over the chain of events that took place at Cincinnati's Riverfront Coliseum late last night, wondering just how 11 young concert goers could have lost their lives during a wild stampede at the doors, rushing for open seating for a concert by the Who a rock group. Eleven people were killed at Riverfront Stadium in Cincinnati because there was a stampede of people who were excited to see the Who. What? The fucking Who. Like, you're going to die for Baba O'Reilly live? <laughs> like, I don't get it, but it's fine. It happened. Right. I'm just reporting I'm not, the news. I'm not going to die for the Who, but you know what? I, I might be one of 11 people who died to see Fleetwood Mac circa 79. Like, maybe. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll be in the crush. I don't know. Could have been one of I don't those know. guys. Bra Bradford, Bradford, who would you risk it all for to see live in 79? Miles Davis. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Miles. The only good you answer. You know what I mean, Marvin? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'd, I'd get crushed by other people at both of those shows. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> On September 19th, Don Bluth and several fellow Disney animators resigned from the company and set up a rival studio that eventually gives us The Secret of Nim, great movie, Land Before Time, and uh, other films that were really pretty good in a period when Disney's animated joints were not. Land before time, my kid, my kid, it didn't hold up. My kids couldn't do it, man. That's the yeah, one. Really? You know what I mean? Really? The dark crystal, dark, dark crystal is still the bar, bro. That's the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a high bar. That's uh, a high, high bar. bar. Beyond that blue horizon is a limitless world of sports. And right now, you're standing on the edge of tomorrow. Sports, 24 hours a day, seven days a week with ESPN, the total sports cable network. C-SPAN and ESPN were both launched in 1979, and uh, the Philips company demonstrated a CD for the first time, and the Sony Walkman went on sale in Japan. Okay. So, like, all kinds of tech shit going down that was going to be very important. Yeah. Uh, McDonald's introduced the Happy Meal. Your kids will love McDonald's Happy Meal. It's food and fun in a box. It's a hamburger or cheeseburger, regular-sized fries, regular-sized soft drink, and a McDonaldland cookie sampler. It all comes in a Happy Meal box with games, puzzles, jokes, and a prize. A prize? Okay, I got a, I got a bone to pick with McDonald's. The Happy Meal right now has Super Mario Brothers movie, and uh, that shit isn't out until April. And my kid, like, every day, every day, my six-year-old is like, can we go see Mario movie? And I'm like, no, not until April. So fuck McDonald's and fuck the Happy Meal. There it is. Uh, the Muppet movie was released in 1979, uh, first of the right. film franchise. And nice. uh, the first Star Trek movie came out that year. I know nice. we usually do other movies later nice. in the thing, but those felt like news events to me. Yeah. Um, the first book of the four-part trilogy, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, was released in 1979. And if you have not read those books, they are actually as good as everybody says. Uh, wow. I promise. Okay. Uh, Michael Jackson's Off the Wall was released in 1979. For my money, his best record, personally. And uh, 
Sugar Hill Gang's rapper does Rapper's Delight came out in '79 too. It. Let's go back to this. Off the wall is the best MJ record. Um, where where uh, where do you sit in this in this question, Bradford Young? That's the one. That's the one. Uh, yeah. That's the one. Okay. That's two number, cannot two cannot be. You know, bad is amazing, but that bad bad actually. What am I talking about, bro? That's crazy. It's thriller. Off the, off the wall, <laughs> is thriller, but definitely off the wall. It's good. Yeah. Yeah. Off the wall yeah. is the only one where he sounds like he was having fun. Nice. To nice. me, out of all of his yes. records, that's, that's the one where he sounds true. like he was having fun. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 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 yeah so, I mean, yeah. That's my opinion. I, I will go along with that. Um, June 11th, John Wayne died. Uh, some other shitty people died. Uh, Nelson Rockefeller, Sid Vicious, uh, Jean Renoir, not, we, we visited the <laughs> shitty people list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you uh, go. Mary Pickford, Nicholas Ray, and Daryl Zanuck. So you know, that's definitely okay. an era for you. Bye, Mary. Um, but yeah, Rosario yeah. Dawson was born in 1979. So fair trade. There you go. And uh, the Iditarod big, big, Dog Race. Big round of applause for <laughs> Round of applause for her, of course. Uh, the Iditarod yeah. Dog Race was won by Musher Rick Swinson behind Lead Dogs Andy and Old Buddy. Uh, every now and then. Again, again, you and the Iditarod news, Mike. Yeah. I, you're cashing you, those you're, fat dog naked, racing checks. Your naked play for big Iditarod is 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 it's a tell, Mike. It's a tell. Let's let's try to make it a little more subtle. Who's paying that? I like uh, <laughs> dogs and big coats. Uh, there was no FIFA World Cup in 1979, but West Indies beat the absolute trousers off of England to win the Cricket Ooh. World Cup by 92 runs. And we are always here to hand England Justice. an L. Holy, Justice. Wait, hang on. <laughs> hang on. Hang on. Hang on. I don't I, – okay. I don't know how cricket works. 92 runs sounds like a lot. That's, it's a fucking lot, that's, dude. I mean, I mean yeah. is that like runs like, like in like baseball? Not, like it doesn't 92. work quite like baseball. You can get more than one in a sort of, you know, within a batter. But, but like, trust me, dude, there were a lot of sad-ass <laughs> – <laughs> white dudes out in the pitch that day. That's all. So okay. all right. we're going to wrap headlines on that high note. All right. Thank you, Mike. Uh, Bradford Young, you ready to, to walk through your top five? Let's do it. Brad, what is your number five best movie of 1979? Ooh. Number five, uh, Norma Ray. Norma Ray has been working since she was 16. She's been a mother since she was 18. She's been on her own since she was 20. Norma Ray is a survivor, and for the first time in her life, she's got a chance to become something more. Good morning, Wachowski, Textile Workers Union of America. A winner. From director Martin Ritz. Martin Ritz, John Alonzo on the camera. I mean, you talk, you talking about a story that if you played it now, you play No More Ray right now, every bit of that film holds up. It's, these are all film school films for me. Mm. These are all discoveries after going to Howard and uh, reorient, reorientating myself to film culture. Mm. Um, so, you know, it, that film, I found that film, not found it, but, you know, you know, literally, you know, super curious about the title really you know it's one of those films that at that moment i was really obsessing over john alonzo's work and so you know i fell upon this small film um that really you know she checked all these boxes it's beautifully done it yeah. goes back to that sense of naturalism we talked about earlier it's about class struggle it's about workers um it's about this woman who's taking the mission to um 
really change the stakes for people within her community. It just made sense for me, made sense to me, you know, as a 19 year old person who really felt film had um, this incredible revolutionary potential um, and that those kinds of stories matter. Yeah. It just, and also too, you know, it, it shocked me. <laughs> it shocked me that, um, you know, a studio would actually make that film, that that film would have actually um, seen the light of day. Yeah. It again, is that thing you talked about earlier where, you know, you have a film that seemingly strikes a balance between being able to speak to uh, a wider audience in a way. Again, I'd be curious to see what those box office numbers look like. Not that I ever gave a shit, but <laughs> that, that the box office numbers, you know, because it, it is it's one of those things where, you know, you make these films to really change people's um, really give people an, uh, a look into um the sort of granularity of humanity, those that thing that matters, that we all really appreciate about film, uh, that we appreciate appreciate about relationships, uh, even without the intervention of a camera. Yeah. So to be to see a film that um, was so radical in its approach on every level, um, but really radical in its story, and be made by a major studio and put out into the world, and you know, and 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 it, it, clearly the film industry um, is not. Um, a beacon of, of 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 labor relations. So to, to, <laughs> to, you know what I mean? To be able to put a film out. I mean, it's 1970. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you yeah. know what it is now. Imagine what it is in 79. So to really to be able to put a mirror to itself in that way is yeah. again goes back to that thing. There are people in the background that saw the need and really had an orientation to cinema that came out of this. You know this 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 um, moment in American history where where people were fired up. You know, people were fired up. So that film really, I saw it amongst the many. I saw, I thought, yeah, well, obviously, big up John Alonzo, one of the greatest of all time. You know, really beautiful story. So Yeah, no, I got to, I was lucky enough to write about this uh, last summer. We, uh, I was one of the critics on a Rolling Stone list of the, like, the 100 best movies about America. I'm like, right. that's how I think about it. Oh, America. wow, wow. Like, this a, okay. This okay. shit is about okay. America, America, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And and about like uh, you know a marginalized person about a you know a, 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 a lower mother. class woman single mother a single, single mother mother single mother leading finding 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 herself and finding putting it all at stake I mean you know what I mean it's all at risk it's like still in the context of I mean now we look at it it's you know we're like years away so we look at um, you know labor struggle labor practices differently but then you imagine a single working class mother going against a whole behemoth monster is um yeah i mean that's 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 yeah it's an incredible film man you know it's an amazing <laughs> film <laughs> it is yeah. all right all right bradford young what is your number four pick for the year 1979 blackjack by ken loach In the England of 1750, a man is hanged, a popular pastime in those days, but Black Jack, Frenchman, sailor, and convicted murderer is still alive. He knew a trick or two, did Black Jack. <laughs> it's this, like, this one was a curveball. This one yo, was a curveball. <laughs> it's like, again, I mean, I'm going back. I mean, as you can see, I love films about working class people. <laughs> I, like, mm -hmm. I, like, I, like, I like films about strange people i like films about freaks you know what i mean i like films about um mm. you know 
about the most beautiful segment of humanity, all of these freaky, queer, weird people who are the really the backbone and the foundation of our everything that we adore that's created that's probably the best currency american currency america's political currency is trash so mm. the only thing that america has as a real international currency is our ability to generate some of the most phenomenal art that really comes out of you know struggle and the people that do it are not are not buttoned up we're not buttoned up we are we are upside down and that's the best part about us and so um you know blackjack for me it, you know, there are many levels to it. Obviously, this is a story about, you know, <laughs> this is like, if there's, if there's an adventure story, if there's an adventure story, <laughs> the best, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, it's like, you know, my father's dream or like, you know, people of my father's generation was always, man, we're going, we're going, we're going, we're going, we're going to hold hands and get all our friends out of prison. You know what I mean? Like, this was the right. one that like, the most seemingly baseless violent act turns into a uh, adventure story where an old dude and a young one <laughs> go on a road trip to break out their, you know what I mean? Break out their, yeah. this person who they feel is unlawfully um, uh, withheld from pub, from public viewing <laughs> because they are seemingly uh, not lining up to the order of the day. And so that, that in case in this adventure film, which I mean, is based on the novel, but th as an adventure film, that's a remix and that's a reinterpreting, sort of a reimagining of that idea. Um, and then you have Ken Loach, who is, you know, he's not fucking around. Ken Loach, he is not. <laughs> Yo, Ken, Ken Loach, Ken Loach is the working person's filmmaker. You know what I mean? So yeah. that's all in there. And you know, this is at a time where 35, 16 film shot, 16 millimeter, like Bushman, we're gonna talk about later, shot 16 millimeter. But that was really like, that's like the low budget. That was a signature of low budget filmmaking, right? And that yep. was that was a tool of radically independent filmmakers. But Ken Loach wasn't just making films on Super 16 then. He was making films on 30, he was shooting films on 35 at the time. So for him, he and Chris Mingez to make, who's one of the, mm. far as I'm concerned, there's like the top, everybody talk about top five MCs, top five DPs, Chris Mingez is like, <laughs> he fluctuates in there for me. It depends on how I wake up, but he's one of my top five favorites. Incredible cat. Um, for them to you bring all the tools to the table, all the sort of unusual tools for such an unusual story about a set of unusual characters in an unusual circumstance, they did it. It's totally natural. Very few lights. It's shot on Super 16. It's Ken Loach with Chris Mingez at like at a moment where they could have been making other decisions. They were, you know, they were they were successful filmmakers. They were considered, especially within the UK, they were considered, you know, um, I mean, international, international film, they were widely respected as being great filmmakers, great artists. Um, so that, for them to tell that story that has such a, um, how, how, what will you call it? I mean, it's, it's based on a very, fa it's, it's, it's based on a famous novel. So of the same title. So for them to not take that sentimental sort of romantic view of it and right. turn it into this, right. this, this sort of false, you know, fourth wall play, theatrical thing um, was a, was an amazing choice. And to also have it in the very Ken Loach observational working with untrained actors to make that choice too. Um, and then have Chris with the fast lenses and the film stock that they use, which, and, 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 you know, to be shooting it on super 16, just is like, it's really a, um, it's one of my favorites. Actually it's one of the Ken Loach films that I discovered 
later. You know what I mean? I didn't really, I, I, I think I saw that film for the first time maybe five years ago. You know, so wow. yeah, I didn't see, I didn't check it till later. So the way the whole thing is shot, like you mentioned, you know, the naturalism, I mean, and I mean, the candlelight, it feels to me like there is a pretty distinct sort of difference in the way things that happened in the 1700s. Yep. Right. Like movies that are being filmed of events that's, you know, at that sort of era to me, like this John Adams on HBO looks a lot more like Black Jack than it right. does like anything that came before that. <laughs> right. Right. And it right. does seem like that, like that set a standard in a lot of ways for, you know, it's everything is candles and, and you know, fireplaces are the only thing anybody has. But like you're saying, that wasn't really technologically possible before then. But they nailed it with Black they Jack. They nailed it. The other thing, everybody's teeth are a fucking mess. That's that. That's that. Ken Loach doing his, you know, the equivalent of street casting. You know what I mean? Like that's 1970. Yeah. That's 1979 in the UK. That's <laughs> there wasn't quite good. The dental hygiene wasn't at the level <laughs> it is now. But no, nah, I mean that's yeah, that's a testament to you know that authenticity that he's always uh, always reaching for. I also think too, you know, not to go on a super long tangent, but. There's a there's a there's a little lesson. There's a when people make when you make a distinct aesthetic choice or a process or you set a structure in place in the way in which you're going to make a film, there are always consequences. Mm. And some of those consequences are the, some of those consequences fall in the visual landscape of the film. So when you line up all these structures, untrained actors, period film, yada locations that are real, you know what I mean, from the period. The, the tenor and the tone and the look of the film starts has to adhere to that. And so uh, l remind yourself of all those day interiors in Blackjack that are complete silhouettes, shooting against windows, right? No light. So they blocking things against the window. And then when you come around for the close up, maybe there's light on the face or maybe not. Still, it's Ken Loach. So some stuff is happening and no wonder. So all these things that get <laughs> developed, there's a certain visual tone, tenor that, that just developed, not just out of a desire to make a film totally natural, but to make a film that fit that the process of making the film, the structure in which we are making the film that is completely Ken Loach is a determinant in the visual style of the film. That's why that film is so incredible, you know, and consistent and consistent and consistent. There's no fluke silhouette. There's no fluke candlelight backlit. Everything is intentional because the structure in which they make the film is yeah. very intentional. Yeah, that's great. Oh, all right. This is a man who understands how you make a movie. Yes, he does. <laughs> <laughs> All right, sir. What is your number three movie for 1979? I'm, I'm gonna make. I'm gonna probably. I'm gonna make a controversial pick. I mean, controversial amongst like my 15 friends who care. But I'm gonna. <laughs> I'm gonna say Stalker. Но стоит тут появиться людям, как все здесь приходит в движение. Здесь исполнится ваше самое заветное желание, самое выстраданное. Stalker is number three. And I know when everybody hears the next two, they're going to be like, what? You pick Stalker? Over <laughs> you pick that over Stalker? But I got to say Stalker. I got to say Stalker. Um, I think 
probably again not the first Tarkovsky film I saw, um, but definitely mm. um, one of the most haunting. And I saw Stalker before I saw Alphaville. So really, oh, wow. this is okay. the first. This so you know where I'm going. This is the first time where I was like, hold on. I'm looking around like, is this science fiction? Like, what's going? What is this? <laughs> right. What is yeah. this? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. You know, I, I mean, you know, being arrested by genre, asking friends, what is this? Like, Alphaville had that way of hiding genre in the way it was executed. This is the first time, you know, um, obviously I saw, you know, see Solaris later, which is much more directly science fiction or scientific. Sure. Um, but this is science fiction in the sense that there is, um you know, which are always kind of like the beautiful, which is to what Tarkovsky always, I felt, did the best. I mean, well, first of all, let me say this. This is a cat that I've learned so much about more over the years, you know, so when I saw Stalker, I didn't know as much about him as I know now. I mean, this is a person who <clears throat> was always yearning for home. This is a person that had a contentious relationship with home. This is a person mm. that was haunted by memory. This is a mm. person that was haunted by loss. Um, yeah. This is this is um this is a person that was haunted with um um loving loving a place that didn't love you back the same home again. Um, oh damn. So I think you know that that I would say that colors all of his films in, a, in every film, every film. Yeah. And so yeah. and so I think with Stalker, um you know, it's for me it was it was and again just just because I know who's probably listening but just to kind of put it in genre so it all makes sense but like this was like for me it was like equal parts horror film and not in the way not in the blood and gore way but in the sense sure. of vo- the sense of void and the the journey to this a scary place called the zone <laughs> you know what i mean that that mm-hmm. that you go to recapture your imagination like this thing this journey that these men are on really was haunting for me because there's a sense, sense of emptiness and loneliness and solitude like a meditative religious solitude again that we know Tarkovsky, Andre Rublev, life of like he's a very religious in that way, a very spirited spiritual I would say spiritual person. So to have that journey, the the human journey to walk on the path of spirit is evident in the film, but that's like the scariest part of the film. So I'm just saying scary, but as horror, but not as like horror as gore and violence. Um, and then there's a science fiction because there's the journey of getting from one point to another and the point that you're, that you're supposed to arrive at the zone, this place called the zone. And if you've seen the film, you know, is this place called the zone where these folks are trying to go to. And that, that place is, um, it's funny when they are, you know, kind of seemingly never arrive, but arrive is like, well, let me not go too deep on that one. I was going to go into a dark, <laughs> rabbit. I was going to go into a rabbit. Go into rabbit. <laughs> but I mean, I, I, I for me, stock. Stalker is, um, I pick, I, you know, I'm picking it for that reason because it's the first films that, are, first film, one of the very first films that gave me, gave, gave it all this really complex layer texture around storytelling, this thing of crossing, you know, so married and sort of imprisoned by genre and going in as an American viewer who thinks genre is everything and realizing that it doesn't mix about anything. And that film is one of the first films outside of like a highly agreement film or the film of the LA Rebellion. A really rebellion filmmakers with film is catharsis. I saw all of that mm-hmm. thing in there. Um, there's a certain level of relatability to it that really speaks really speaks to me. I'm not even getting into the visual style of the film. The cinematography is incredible, um, but it's but it's um, you know I, I I just I just I just feel like 
again, I, I discovered that film. I discovered Stalker was on the list from 79. I just felt like it's a Tarkovsky film. How can I not put it on the top? <laughs> the, you know, the top, yeah. Yeah. one of the top five films, you know, um, and probably a film that's probably more relatable to me now than it was when I was like 20 years old when I saw it. Wow. Um, I really, I really yeah. feel like I really feel like that journey that they were on the film is a journey that I'm on right now, you know, um, as you look for that space that can restore your imagination, which is when you can when you can restore your imagination then you can really imagine your own liberation. And I don't just mean that from like political re- liberation from a nation state, but like like spirit, spiritual liberation. Um, yeah. and, I, and I think, you know, that film, even 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 beyond mirror, you know, or even beyond yeah. sacrifice is more dense and more bold and more and more about that time too. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, that's it's it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a massive. What, what year? What, what, what year is Chernobyl? What year is Chernobyl? By the way, you remember? Eighty six. Eighty six. So I mean, all types of like, you know what I mean? All types of like scary predict predictions, a wasteland, a, you know what I mean? Like all these yeah. things that are like prophetic. But Chernobyl had been fantasized. It'd been fantasized, yeah. For years, for years before exactly. it happened. Right. You know, in in movies and in books and in I, what I didn't understand the first like watching a movie this time, you know, you've got one there's three characters and you think of them as separate characters because they're sort of arguing with each other and like right. right, they're three separate people. But one of them wants understanding them one of them wants inspiration and the other one wants money. money. And when I was watching it this time, I was like, That's actually like I'm all of those people. That's it. You know what I mean? That's like it. in a lot of ways, like it <laughs> is it's sort of one person's you know, uh, psyche broken down into three sort of arguing characters, which also feels fucking real. Yeah. Right? That, like yeah. the sort of the side of you that wants inspiration and the side of you that has to feed children don't always agree on what sort of they want to do today. Right. Yeah. You know, right. so that, yeah, I really enjoyed it. I, I'd seen it before, but I really, like you say, seeing it now, it, it was much different now. Um, as a sort of older person, as an older person, I mean, it's also like you know, it's it's uh, it's also kind of uh, think about it. It really highlights our distractions, like how distracted we are. I think too. I, mm-hmm. I I can't go without saying that you know the cadence of Stalker. I think maybe next to Andre Rublev, um, really totally discombobulated my like 1977. 1989, 1990, hip hop era, golden era mind of music video, growing mm-hmm. up, hype, the whole joint, yeah. like it really discombobulated yeah. my sense of time and pace. Um, and that really, I think, is what the film is about in a way, too, is that we have all these like industrial distractions and how we all need to go on this walk to this place yeah. that's unknown, that's supposed to restore our faith. And so I think that, you know, and, and it's being led by a person that's called a stalker. You know what I mean? Like there's some things that are really, really relevant now. You know what I mean? I guess that's also, you know, part of the reason why something like Norma Ray too is a really powerful film because it, it just, these are all films that put it all right now. It's all going down. You've seen yourself in the film right now, yeah. you know? Yeah. yeah. They stand the test Definitely. of time. Yeah. There's an apocryphal story and I, we, we got to go on, but there's an apocryphal <laughs> story that I believe is true which is that someone from the Soviet film agency saw this movie and told him it needed to be more dynamic and, and, you know, needed to have more action. And he said, I am concerned with the, with the opinion of two people and their names are Brisson and Bergman. Bergman. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, 
Yeah. And that was the end of yeah. this conversation. That's he it. did fuck all to his wow. movie. You see that. the movie <laughs> that he wanted to make. That's what I mean. It's an apocryphal yeah. story, but I believe it. You if it's not true, it should be. You should drop the nugget. I mean, according to AJ, according to AJ, I think he told me this, but according to AJ, like, I mean, everybody on that crew died of can- the same cancer. You know what I mean? Everybody yeah, sure. on that crew died yep. of the same cancer. And so. what looks like snow, there's yep. a point where it looks like there's snow falling in the river. Yep. That's basically asbestos. That's asbestos. Oh, shit. Yeah. Yeah. Shit. Yep. Okay. Oh. Well, as you say, like a movie, much less two, would have to be pretty fucking spectacular to top Stalker <laughs> on a top five list. So, Bradford Young, what is your number two movie for for nineteen seventy nine? The number two movie is two thousand nineteen ninety three. My mother passes away. Crazy time in my life. I go to live with my father in Chicago, who's an incredible dude. Sitting in his bedroom one night, watch watching whatever. He's laying on the bed. I got my, I'm sitting on the chair. I got my feet propped up on his bed. He's an incredible cat with a little TV. He starts flicking through the channels, and this helicopter going. He's oh, have you seen this film? I've been a soldier since I was 19, and I still haven't learned how to wait for it. I wanted a mission for my sins. They gave me one. Nobody had ever gone on a mission like it before. And when it was over, I'd never want another one. Your mission is to proceed up the Nung River in a Navy patrol boat. Pick up Colonel Kurtz's path at New Mung Ba. When you find the colonel, infiltrate his team by whatever means available and terminate the colonel's command. Terminate. Terminate with extreme prejudice. It's apocalypse. I was I not I had never seen it. I know I I I had didn't even know I was going to film school, man. Man, he showed me that film. Like I'm gonna show my son this film called Apocalypse Now that is going to change his life. And for my father, who was just like a regular old dude that like movies, you know what I'm saying, worked at the bank. Now Knowing that that was one of his favorite films, man, my whole yeah. level of respect for my father is different because he could have shown yeah. me, she could have shown me anything, but he showed me Apocalypse Now and it completely fucked me up. Yeah. It like, it, it, it made me hate war even more. Mm-hmm. It made me, it, 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 um, it made me stand at attention about it made me next to Daughters of the Dust because that's like one of the films I saw during that period too. It made me be, it made me say, "Damn, like this is what films like." It was a feeling and it was visual. It was because it was visual and it was it was a it was it was also appealing because it the backdrop was war, but it was like it was like the Odyssey. So it was also mm-hmm. like y'all trying to indoctrinate me in school with all this Greco-Roman craziness, but. And it's not, and I'm not feeling it because I don't see how it's relatable. But then this filmmaker, who who I share nothing in common with, seemingly has just made it all relevant to me because he bagged it as something that is is close to my heart, which is man's yeah. inability to live in peace. You know what I mean? Like that obsession as a young person trying to, 19 years old or 17 years old, trying to be about peace and love. And there was this film that is really about 
the hype, like the hyper industrialized. It, it, it's like like this, and I'm going all over. It's like from a scholarly level, it's like exploring the hyper industrialized war war making machine. But then, but in, in that sense, you're watching um, this thing. You're you're being tempted by this thing that's so familiar, like our love and lust for violence and films. But then it's it's a direct and not even not even um, subtly. It's a direct, powerful next to paths of glory. It's like a direct, powerful analysis and criticism um, of the war machine, you oh, know. Yeah. Um, and it was just so. I mean, the sequence with the black soldiers, man, like that, that really rocked me because I'd never seen that before in film, not in that mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. um, it was just, it, and, and it, and it, and it, and it was, and it wasn't like Hamburger Hill or anything like that. It was, it was, it was, it was surreal. You know what I mean? It had yeah. like, I said, it gave me a lot of questions about like, this must be what war really is like. It's not, it's not that thing where you're with your friends in the bush all day. It's also like, you're, you're high, you're, you're, you've lost your mind, you're not at home. I mean, there's all these things that are taking place that put you in an alternate universe. And the film just really, um, it just blew me away, man. And the more and more, you know, um, you know, rewatching it with somebody like Haile Garima, um, every time I watch it with somebody that's slightly older than me or years older than me or not, you know what I mean? Like every time I watch it, somebody's bringing a new interpretation to that film. And um, it's you know I had to, I just had to put it above Stalker just because it um, it's an American classic and it's a it's a it's a revolutionary film man you know it's it's and 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 let me and let you know not just celebrating the film you know not scene for scene but I'll just say also too man like Big Up Francis Ford Coppola probably the best American filmmaker to ever live you know like. And, yeah. and 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 what he was about and what their whole America yeah. Zoetrope was about and what his whole cadre of friends were about and the fact that they wanted to actually go to Vietnam and make that film. Um, it's so point. fucking insane. Crazy, you know what I mean? And the fact that, you know, George Luke, I mean, all these cats were part of that, that cohort of filmmakers yeah. that decided not to go to L.A. and go to the Bay and make their films. Um, and they're all still there. They're all they're all worth billions yeah. of dollars. <laughs> and, they, they, you know, they still haven't really stop making those kinds of films, you know? And so, yeah. you know, I just remember watching Hearts of Darkness, his wife's documentary and just being, you know, just seeing, seeing myself, seeing the kind of filmmaker that I wanted to be, or this kind of film, I want to be in the jungle for a hundred days with my friends, making a film that's about this, this clown ass shit we call war. And so, um, yeah, I just, it's just, that film is, is an American epic, um, you know, and, it, and, and as like American that struggles with, his Americanness, um, and is oftentimes running from it, and oftentimes fighting it in the denial of it. Um, it was good to find a filmmaker who was a lot older than me at the time, of course, a lot older than me, and seeing that in the film and knowing that this person also had the same questions and the same concerns about this whole nation-building thing and this thing called war and this total dislike and distaste for war, and that that just like, at you know how it is at eighteen when you're like. Fuck the whole. Even now we like that, but then you're like, man. It's comforting to see somebody who's so successful who That's agrees it. with you. Who agrees in a with way you. of like, okay, like he's a he's a successful artist, he's a successful businessman, he's well respected, but he also doesn't believe in any of this bullshit. That's it. And has been open about that and never has. And when you're 18, 19 years old and trying to figure out who you're gonna be, for me at least, like, 
And where I'm growing up, like, if you're not going to be, like, a Christian, like, a very sort of, like, I mean, Ronald Reagan's America, right? Blah, blah, blah. Like, if you're not living that life, then you are not going to, like, have a successful adulthood. Right. He made all he made all the cowboys look like clowns. Like, I just love the fact that everything that was already, even though I didn't even know how to read cinema, I didn't know how to read films. Right. Then, you know, I had, right. but even then I knew what he was doing. That's, that's, that's kind of amazing. I'm listen. Yeah, I'm I'm a I'm a black kid from Louisville, Kentucky. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, to, to be to be served. I'm I'm been I've been served Goonies up to this point. So to be served Apocalypse now and be like, oh, he's really he's getting at all these clowns that I don't like either. You know what I mean? Like yeah. that really that yeah. really spoke to me. That's that's yeah. that film. Yeah, that film is man. Yes, yeah, masterpiece. Yeah. masterpiece. 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 It is. All right. So what what film? is the masterpiece of masterpieces. God damn, this is a good episode of our podcast, Jason. Baby. I don't want to interrupt you. But... Yes, it is. Yes, it is. I'm having fun with y'all. <laughs> the most amazing film in 1979 is Haile Gurima's Bushmom. I know how to govern my future when I come out. I mean, if I come out alive. Because they'll kill a brother year the moment one starts to see. They don't give a damn if one stays blind. Since that is death within itself, and don't pose the threat to the decadent society. But once you start to see, baby, the light, the truth, then they cut it by shooting you down. It's funny enough, right? It's bookend Norma Ray. <laughs> mm. You know, mm-hmm. it's these two films that are about, you know, yeah. very distinguished, powerful women dealing with um trying to get this boot off of their neck and the way in which they do it is totally different um in terms of the characters i'm not even talking about the filmmakers but the way in which the characters do that in the films are equally revolutionary but one has a tenor um but the but the color and the tenor in which they do it and the way in which it's imagined has been totally determined by the two filmmakers in their own through their own voice and um you know, Haile Grima is, is uh, you know, as a friend, my one of my best friends, my teacher changed my whole understanding of what cinema is. You know, I came to yeah. Howard as a yeah. kid. Like I said, I grew up on Star Wars and Goonies and all the films that like subtly dehumanize you and make fun of, you know, mm. uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, all, all the stuff that like you didn't know any better then. But now I watch it. I, like, it, I can't watch that stuff now because. I realize how much it like undermined my humanity and how much it undermined the humanity of my friends, people who look like me, people who don't look like me. And um, to be go to Howard and be introduced to films that ha- that try to support the human building project and try to support the revolutionary potential of human beings, um, and to to be le- and, and and the fact that that film's made by literally a group of students at a university at the time UCLA with Charles Burnett, Larry Clark. Um, Haile yeah. Gurima Cadre. Incredible, um, incredible group of, of people. Incredible Just group of people. You know, you know, and you, you know, you got, you know, the Terrence Malick's of the world floating around during that time too. Like that moment again, um, you know, really that LA Rebellion moment is really kind of a seminal moment in my own sort of film pedagogy, you know, my understanding of the kind of films I want to make, kind of filmmaker I want to be. So to go to Howard and know that film wasn't didn't have to just be this thing that I knew up until age 17, which I thought was like all fun and games, but was also just like undermining my whole thing, my whole humanity. 
and then going to Howard and somebody saying, sit down, these films are made for you. They're about mm. you. This film's about your mm. mother. This film's about your aunt. This is film is about, um, this, this is the, this is your mother's imagination. This is your aunt's imagination. This is, this is, this is what your mother is thinking about when the child protective services person comes to the house and tries to take the child. Your mother just doesn't just, <laughs> she's imagining taking that bottle off the table and bopping them upside. Like the, the, the whole thing was a very familiar, it just felt like it's the first film that felt like um, I knew where I was, you know, it's the first film, like Spike's films had that thing to it. There was a tenor, much more and much more respectability, a black respectability politic tenor. It was revolutionary. You know, again, do the right thing is, you know, not, I'd just seen that a few years before that, obviously school days, all of those things really affected me, but this one was different. It smelled different. Roger Young cinematography was something I'd never seen before. You know what I mean? It's not, she's got to have it black and white. This is a different thing. Right. With black embodied and black hair. The sound design was um, something I'd never heard sonically. I'd never heard before. The way in which the film looks at time, the way it, uh, time as a, as a uh, etching of the imagination, the way characters imagine things that are seemingly not happening, but are actually happening. Um, the, the way it gets weaved in with, um, uh, 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 there's 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 a, there's a shot where you, the camera's out the window and you see these cops run up on these guys in the street and you're like oh is that real that's actually real that actually happened you know what I mean like there's all these things that the film quilts together that are specifically I would say you know um, there's always this question about what is black cinema and I would say that's black cinema you know what I mean I think that's like if you want to understand like you know this question of what is a queer cinema what is Chinese what is Japanese what is black cinema that's black cinema you know what I mean that was the first time where I realized like Oh, we actually have a way of making films that is um, not three act Sid, you know, three act structure, air stealing and thing like time is time is relative to who we are as cultural beings. And so. I, I like I said, I just backed out from Bush Mama. I just get basically gave up. I showed you my whole car, my whole deck. <laughs> this, this is my favorite film of all times. Yeah. Um, yeah. And. I, I remember one time, I remember one time, you know, you're a student. I remember um, this, this is when there was a question is like, if you're a black filmmaker, can you make a film about this? If you're a white filmmaker, can you make a film? about? It? at that time, my question was like, sure. if you're, if you're, if you're, if you're, if you're um, a man making a film, how can you make a film about a woman? And um, I remember the way in which highly contextualized, it wasn't political. It wasn't of the like, milquetoast neoliberal sort of perspective of the day you know what i mean hmm. he went to the visceral thing he went to the cerebral thing which was film is a mirror of your mother film can be a mirror of your aunt film is a mirror of your grandmother's hands i mean always talk about grandmother's hands like the wrinkle in your grandmother's face so for me for him to explain it that way liberated me so much it made me realize like oh we can tell these stories you can embody um we can you know these stories the characters in the story don't have to be the character. It doesn't have to be a, an etching of the director. It can be a reflection of the director's imagination. Going back to Tarkovsky, it, be, it can be uh, um, a gathering of memory. You know what I mean? A, a, and specifically with highly a gathering of a mis, of a displaced person. When you look at Bush Mama, it is it is the story of a 
displaced person in their own home. You know what I mean? There's a, so there's so many things that <clears throat> that film really rearranged for me um, as a filmmaker, as a person that wanted to be a visual storyteller that I just had to like back out from there. So the best film in 1979 is Haile Green's Bush Mama. By the way, 1980, I want to say, 1977. Well, Haile won critics he won Critics Week at Cannes with Bush Mama and Harvest 3000. So he took that film all the way to Cannes and won for two films. Bush Mama he was making was a sanctioned film. I think Bush Mama was the one that was like sanctioned by the university, but then he was making Harvest 3000. He snuck and made that on the side. So nice. it, was also, it was also like going back to that real American independent cinema, like you talk about making a film and not, not asking for permission. That's it. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, yeah, again, that to, to determine his, you know, as we see him now, is like determine his whole life. This is a guy who never made a film, asked permission from nobody. So, anyway. It's a it's an incredible piece of work, and I'll, I'll, I'll own it. I hadn't seen it until you brought it to our attention. So the refrain on this show, man, is that, like, if nothing else, it's an excuse for smart people to tell me what movies to watch. And I'm trying to tell you, and I want to make one big up, big up to Roderick Young. The cinematographer mm. of Bush Mama mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. saw all those LA Rebellion films, a forgotten hero, a forgotten hero, Roderick Young, one of the best ever. I hope he's listening, man. We see you. We, we know, we, we know, we see you that film. Yeah. So that's a moment too to big up a person who we, it's not Storaro. It's not John Alonzo. It's none of those guys. This is, he ain't never had no ASC on his name. This brother, Roderick Young was a G was really, the the L.A. Rebellion cinematographer, you know. So if you celebrate those films, you got to celebrate Roger Young because he was the he was the visualist. All right, Bradford, thank you for that incredible top five list. Thank y'all. All right, let's let's now find out in in some contrast, not complete, uh, what films were winning trophies and making money in 1979. Here's Mike with awards and box office. Sell out with me, oh yeah, sell out with me tonight. Start with the Oscars, Best Picture, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay to Robert Benton, Best Actor to Dustin Hoffman, Best Supporting Actress to Meryl Streep, won all those same prizes at the Golden Globes for drama, Kramer vs. Kramer. Good film. Good, solid, like, mainstream, character-driven drama, Kramer vs. Kramer. I, I I only saw it a few years ago and was really struck by it. Love um it. it sounded like this was a, this was a possible runner up for you Bradford? Yeah, I mean Yeah, Kramer versus Kramer is that's a that's a yeah, that I almost it would it would I would have switched out Norma Ray for Kramer versus Kramer. I just I just remember seeing that film with my sisters like shortly after it's like my parents didn't get divorced in 79 but surely <laughs> as the first time I saw it was that I remember and I remember being like this is highly relatable and damn this film is scary. <laughs> I was like, yeah. is it? I was like, is this? I was like, is this? It's about to happen with us. Like, I'm gonna fall off the jungle gym at the playground and break my leg, and my father's got to run me five. Bu-. It was like, this is. Is this what divorce is? Because you know what I mean. It was. It was. It was, uh, yeah. nah, it was. It was a hard. It was a heartbreaking one, man. But really, like, also relatable. It made you not want to. I mean, I saw it as a kid. So even seeing it as a kid, I like I understood what was right. going on. It's a, it's a master. It's again, it's an American film. Like that. That. That situation is so so uniquely American, and um, but for a kid dealing with the par- divorce of their parents, and like I just that film resonated with me, you know. Yeah. And that and yeah. yeah yeah, and the performances are crazy, 
great. Really, really fine work by both yeah, of them. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Best actress to Sally Field and best original song to It Goes Like It Goes from Norma Ray. The aforementioned Norma Ray. Hell of a Sally Field performance. Getting some flowers. Yep. Uh, best supporting actor to Melvin Douglas. Also tied for this prize at the Golden Globes with Apocalypse Now, Robert Duvall. Also won the Golden Globe for Best Actor Comedy Musical, Peter Sellers, in Being There. Mm. Being There is is a beautiful movie. And and I guess Ashby's last sort of masterpiece, but like what a what a last masterpiece it is. <laughs> yeah. Best original screenplay to Steve Tesich. I think that's right. Okay. Also the Golden Globe for Best Picture Comedy Musical went to Breaking Away. I haven't seen Breaking, Breaking Away. Away. Uh, Breaking Away was one of my late father's favorite movies. Like you talk like wow. the love your dad had for Apocalypse Now. That's how my dad felt about Breaking Away. Sat wow. me down at about at about that age and was like, this is a movie right here. Right. <laughs> not, not, that not that bullshit you're watching. Right. right. You know, and it is <laughs> because it. it's like a really it's a really tender. You know, it's about it's about being a young man and about being and about friendship and about. It, frankly it's kind of about toxic masculinity before we were calling it that um and the stuff with paul dooley and his as his dad in that movie is is really beautiful and of course means a lot more to me now that my dad has passed yeah yeah i, I love breaking away bradford uh thoughts on breaking away i never seen breaking away never seen it's a good film good film never seen it. best foreign film went to the tin drum Ooh. I, don't think, I don't think i've seen the tin drum either other significant award winners, best uh, Golden Globe for Best Actress Comedy Musical went to Bette Midler, and Best Song for The Rose uh, went to The Rose. Damn, The Rose. Ah, I forgot about it. Yeah, okay. Is that a Gypsy yes. Rose yeah, takeoff? Or, uh, no, no, no. That's, that's a Janis Joplin takeoff. Janis Joplin. That's, basically, <laughs> that's basically Bette Midler playing Janis Joplin. Yeah. Uh, Bradford, uh, you uh, you have affectionate thoughts on The Rose? Oh, uh, man, I saw that, that. That's like a risque. I mean, I, I again, one of those ones, you know, from childhood, I remember seeing, you know, yeah. um, young Bette Midler. You know what I mean? Like, whoa, okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes, correct. correct. Yeah, you know what I mean? Well, yeah, she was sort of out of that phase of life by the time I was aware of her. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that, you know. I remember watching the Rose yeah. and being like, "Should I watch? Should I be watching this? Is this?" <laughs> Some of the best young viewing experiences. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, Golden Globe for best foreign film went to. Are you going to pronounce this, Jason? La Cajafo. There you go. <laughs> La Cajafo. Uh, which I still haven't seen. I just, I, I, I just always end up watching. I was just end up watching the Birdcage again. I'm like, it can't right, be funnier right. than the Birdcage. So I'm gonna <laughs> just watch the Birdcage again. Never seen it. Tied for the Palme d'Or at Cannes was the Tin Drum and Apocalypse Now. Yeah. So I, I just got, I gotta get around to watching the Tin Drum. But I do love that, even if it was a tie, that Apocalypse Now not only won the Palme d'Or at Cannes, but gave us that great clip of him at that fucking, at that Cannes uh, press conference, that clip at the beginning of Heart of Darkness, where he's like, my film is not about Vietnam, my film it, it, is, is Vietnam. Vietnam. That's right. That's right. <laughs> we That's were right. out in the jungle. We had too much money. And slowly but surely, we lost our minds. <laughs> 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 in the uh the box office top 10 number 10 go. was the muppet movie that's great movie that's a great american family film right there and i i have two children and i've seen the muppet movie many 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 times and it holds up to repeat viewings in my humble opinion bradford thoughts on the muppet movie nah it's it's a it's a it's a smash in the house you know 
All right. <laughs> you know, Muppet movies are one of the films that you're like, man, I'm different. I'm, I have a different relationship to film. And then they put your kids, put it on, and you're like, nah, I still actually love this. <laughs> this, 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 this. I still love this film. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Number nine was Moonraker. Still wow. one of the Bonds I haven't seen because Ooh. of its incredibly bad reputation. I'm trying to tell you, the Moonraker is horrendous. <laughs> the film is, <laughs> the film is bad, bro. That is not a good film. <laughs> That's the worst Bond movie ever. Well-timed pause right then. Number eight went to Steve Martin's The Jerk. Oh, my God. That's 79. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I can watch The Jerk now. I don't think I can watch that now. I think I have to, I have to let that win. <laughs> I have to let my kids find that on their own and come to me. <laughs> like, yo, Bob, I watch, I watch this film called The Jerk and I sit down. Let me talk to you about this. <laughs> uh, seven uh, was was ten. The movie Ten. Blake Edwards Ten. Good, solid, uh, grown up. That was back when occasionally in motion picture theaters there would be a movie for grown ups about love and sex. If you can imagine such a thing. Uh, number six, Alien. Ridley like, Scott, the original, like alien. no plurals, no no no, no numbers, colons, no just subtitles, alien. alien, same year stalk, same year stalker. Very interesting. Good double, Very, good double good feature double, right there. Double feature. <laughs> Number five, Star Trek: The Motion Picture. I still have never seen the first Star Trek. I've seen all of the sequels, and again, it's that same thing as Moonraker. It's got this terrible reputation, so I never never made it back to it. Bradford, have you? Uh, I've Some seen it. Actually, another another one. My father introduced me. I, it's not memorable. I, I, the only one, the only one I really, the one I really remember was when Spock died. That's not that though. That's not that. Yep. That's two. That's two, right? That hurt my yep. feelings. Yep. I remember yep. that. I remember feeling sad. <laughs> <laughs> no, I like phrasing it as that hurt my feelings. Like it was hurt, personally aimed. It was personal. Man. I like that. Yeah. Oh man, they it killed was. him. He's dead. How's he dead? Yeah, yeah mm. like that. Number four was Apocalypse Now. Well Good, for that. Good for that for yeah. making some well cash. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, number three, Rocky Two. Wow, that's 79? Yeah. yeah. You got to get some shit out of the way so you can land the big Russia one. Rocky Two <laughs> is, is one of the tolerable sequels. Uh, even if, again, the, the, the racial politics of, of the motion picture, not the greatest. But um, I will tell you, I'll just put this out there. My, my wife and I watched creed last night she had never seen it i've seen it many times the first um the first creed she had never seen but she had she had just watched the two black panther movies and i was like okay well we're gonna watch my favorite ryan coogler movie now let me Uh, tell you something and mm. let me tell you something Mm -hmm. creed is a low-key masterpiece it is people 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 don't get it i'm trying i'm not people do get it i'm just saying the people that don't get it I'm like, listen, let's have a conversation. That film. You can't. No, you can't talk to people who don't see that. Bradford Young. <laughs> nah, that, you can't talk to those people. I, 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 I cried like three times watching it this time, and I knew everything that was coming. Okay, sorry. <laughs> this is not a podcast about Creed. Number two at the box office for 79, Mike. Nobody would guess this in a million years. I sure Nobody. didn't. Nobody. Fucking Amityville Horror, bro. The Amityville Horror. Jason Bailey. The Amityville Horror was the outgrossed number two. Rocky two outgrossed Star Trek one outgrossed Apocalypse Now. I would not have guessed. Amityville I mean, I know horror. they made they've made like literally forty Amityville movies because you can just put Amityville in your title and you don't have to pay for it. But still, I I, it, I mean, I like some cheesy seventies horror, but Amityville Horror is not particularly good seventies cheesy 
horror. I'm just saying, I'm just saying like when they when the voice says get out. <laughs> so right. Bye. When I, bye. Bye. <laughs> I'm out, man. I just <laughs> that shit with that one. Yep. Yo, I yeah, I'm kind of scared of that yep. film, man. That one has it's, yep. it's got a thing. It's got a yep. thing. And number one for 1979, yep. well deserved. 106 million dollars. Kramer versus Kramer. Yeah, Can you that's... imagine a movie like Kramer versus Kramer making 106 million dollars now? Yeah, that's because I can't. That's Let alone not. in 1979 dollars. Nah, no. Nobody's nobody. Nobody wants to see a procedural family drop. Nah, that's nah. <laughs> but that film, man. I, th- I think you know. I think that time when it, I think when that film came out, man, it was just so. It, I mean, I mean, well, I don't know what the statistics are, but you know, that's kind of. It's kind of showing us something that's slight, slightly apocalyptic. That's a lot of divorce. You know, there's a lot. That's a changing of an American culture. You know what I mean? Like, yep. That's, I mean, in the way, in the way in which the mom bounces, like, woo, she's just like, I'm tired of you and I'm leaving you and the kid. Yep. Like that's, yep. That was hardcore, man. I think so. I think, I think yeah. folks rushed to see that because, you know, we're so repressive. I think people were probably like, I want to go see this because I'm actually, it's relatable, you know, it's relatable. It actually allowed us to be open about something that, and I'm just, again, I'm assuming all this, but allowed us to be open about something that we just could not be open open with before that, you know? So I think, yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, just, just purely on, again, you know, a woman character, just not being tied to this man and just saying, like, I'm just not satisfied. I'm not, I'm not doing this, you know? Well, that's that is what's fascinating about watching it now, because like when it was made, it was very clearly like written, it seems to me, at least by the male screenwriter to cast her as kind of a villain. Right. Like to present that to present that as this sort of like unimaginable action. But woman would leave her child. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Meryl Streep plays it with such nuance. And, you know, and looking at that through sort of a contemporary like post second wave lens it plays i think much differently than intended when you watch it now i know you got kids knocking on the door can i get can we get can we do a five minute lightning round? Okay, good here we go okay all right five minutes on the big clock and here we go paul schrader's hardcore was released in 1979 never seen hardcore that's that's how how we do lightning round moving on uh (laughs) penitentiary was released in 1979 jomo fanaka get out of here that shit's trash get out of here walter hills the warriors was released in 1979 yeah i mean I, i still appreciate that film yeah, I, I like. I'm not. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna tell my mentors that, but like, I, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> Abel Ferrara's first feature, Driller Killer, was released in 1979. Nah, I mean, King of New York is where I start with Abel. Like everything else for me is like I don't. I don't get it. <laughs> I, don't, I don't get it. John Cassavetes' opening night masterpiece. What are we talking about? So so relate like. Yeah. Painful. Again, arduous. Like you anyway, sorry, it's a fire round. Go ahead, my bad. Bob Fosse's All That Jazz. Masterpiece. Can I say Beyonce's single ladies? <laughs> 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 the 
China Syndrome, starring Jane Fonda and Jack. Oh, Lemmon. the China Syndrome. Oh yeah, I'm. You know what? I haven't. I tried to watch that like last year. I didn't. I didn't get through it. But um, yeah, the filmmaking is good. I didn't. I never. I can't really say I finished that film, but um, that's the nuclear fallout film, right? That's the one that happens yeah. at the power plant, right? Um, yeah, and then like two got, two weeks the, later, two weeks uh, later, Three Mile Island happens. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, nah, nah. Respect from what I've seen so far. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the the very definition of hashtag problematic art. Woody Allen's Manhattan was released in 1979. Anything you'd like to say on that one, Bradford Young? This is where you have this. I'm gonna say masterpiece. There we go. Masterpiece. Problematic as hell. Problematic as hell. Masterpiece. Matt. Masterpiece filmmaking for sure. I just watch it with the sound off. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It'll be eighty-five percent as good. Right. With none of the problematic. I mean, Gore, okay, you know what I say about you know what I'm gonna say about Manhattan? Gore Willis. Enough said. That's what I should have said from the top. Gore Willis. Moving on. <laughs> Albert Brooks's real life. Never seen it, but I love Albert, Albert Brooks as a trip. Steven Spielberg's 1941. Bye, Steven. Bernie Casey and Rosalind Cash in the Watts Monster. Moving on. <laughs> I. What is that? Peter Bogdanovich's. I don't know, but I like it's called the Watts Monster, and it's got Bernie <laughs> Casey in it. How have I never seen it? Um, Bruce Lee's final posthumous film, Game of Death, was released in 1979. Part Eight. Yeah, that, that's that's a great film. That's a great film. The Black Stallion. That's the one with Mickey Rooney, right? Mm-hmm. Nah, that's 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 come on, bro. That's 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 cotton candy and popcorn right there, man. You can't Bush Mama, Bush Mama can't take me away from that one. That's 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 the, <laughs> <laughs> that still warms my heart. <laughs> Norman Jewison's and Justice for All. Never seen it. All I will tell you is it does include Al Pacino roaring you're out of order. I'm out of order. This whole court is out of oh, order. Okay. That's all a, right. That's the whole that's the whole reason to see that one. And then closing out our lightning round, I got two two to run by you that I haven't seen. I don't expect you to see, but they're my two favorite titles for films released in 1979. The Fish That Saved Pittsburgh. <laughs> wow. All right. And I'm sorry, the best title of 1979, there was a major motion picture released in theaters called Redneck County. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is... Uh, a pretty good name for where Mike and I grew up. Um, <laughs> and with that, with that, that we right will now. close. <laughs> we will close out the lightning round. Bradford Young, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been such a treasure. It's been yeah, such a thank treat. Thank y'all. Thank y'all, folks. You can follow. Oh, oh, oh! You got to. Uh, sorry, this is our our mandated podcast. It's in the bylaws of doing a podcast, folks. If you like the show, if you like uh, guests like Bradford Young and like to hear what they have to say about motion pictures, please rate and review our program on your podcatcher of choice. Put a few stars on there. Tell folks what you like about it. We certainly appreciate it. You can follow me on Twitter at Jason Bailey or on Instagram at Fun City Cinema. Mike, where can the people follow you? I am on Twitter at BrainwashedLib. And before we go, sir, what is, Mike Hole, your favorite movie of 1979? I got to go with Caligula, dude. Like, the first time you <laughs> see that movie, you're like a teenager. 
and and you're like it's purely like a prurient thing and you're like oh my god like lesbians or whatever as i've grown older and i've learned way more about the roman era i've learned way more about filmmaking i've learned way more about everything that it, that movie is about i the movie i don't know it's still a good movie like i the movie <laughs> i have a i have an enduring intellectual relationship with that film that just can't be replaced how about you jason what's your favorite film in 1979 I almost went with Disco Godfather, and instead I oh, just wore the T-shirt. There you go. You got the T-shirt. <laughs> but my real pick is, in fact, Richard Pryor Live in Concert, which counts, Yo, which was a theatrical release. Yeah, yeah. It was not yes. an HBO special. Released yeah. in theaters. Grossed a fuckload of money. And Pauline Kael said that Richard Pryor should have won the Oscar for Best Actor for Richard Pryor Live in Concert. And as we like to say on this show... Pauline was right. All right. Thank you again. Thank you again, Bradford Young. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Jason. See y'all. And thank you for listening. Peace, peace.